Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this show is all about building a campaign from scratch with you and for you. This season is all about the Fallout role-playing game, and if you need a copy of the rules, head over to your local game or bookshop, or grab your PDF or physical copy from the Modiphius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Now, before we get into new stuff, I've got a couple of notes from last week's show we need to get into. The first concerns the radiation exposure chart. The DMs started flooding in pretty much as soon as folks had a chance to check out the show. It was pointed out to me that I'd mentioned in my breakdown of Arnold that its radiation levels were high, yet I had the group at a level one or two where they were. So, yeah, that's on me. Set the initial level at a three or four and the second level at a four or five. That should account for them being several miles away from the actual bomb site, and we'll say the heavier radiation doesn't blow to the north because the winds blow east-west, west-east, or north-south. It's playing with nature, I know, but it's a pretend world, right? I also realized during editing that I made a mistake when I was laying out the size of the ferry. I said during the description that there were square feet available for the hunt, but I should have said there were 10 square feet available. Sorry for the confusion. All right, so we've got corrections made. Let's move on. This week, we'll finally get back to another game recap from my group since we finally got to play again last week. But before we do that, how about we resolve our build from last week? But of course, before we write new stuff, we must recap the old stuff. Last week, the group took the final of the four jobs off the job board, and it required them to see Martin at the Lime Ferry to discuss supplies he needed. They met up with him to find the supplies he was speaking of would involve the group crossing the river to hunt radstags, and if they were so inclined, Yao Guai. So they crossed, got a glance at the two families warring over this portion of the wasteland, and went hunting. They may have also had a bad interaction with members of the Lagerfield family, and that will change how some things work down the line. We ended last week's build with the group wrapping up their hunting expedition and heading back towards the ferry. Now, it occurs to me we never detailed how it would work with Martin and the ferry. Would he sit there and wait for them to come back, or would he give them a flare gun and have them fired it up when they got back to the bank? Honestly, that's your call. I'd be okay with handling it either way. And before we pick up, make note of where your group is vis-a-vis their Radix, Radaway, and radiation exposure per the chart we worked out last week, and that's available on the Bad GM Productions website. By my estimation, unless the group's got a lot of chems, they should be feeling the effects of the radiation at this point, and that's going to come into play as we go along. If, by chance, they cut the trip short when the chems ran out, things aren't going to be quite as bad, but I somehow suspect they chose to maximize their payout, so things aren't going to be that easy. What happens next happens regardless of whether or not the group had their encounter with the logger fields and the hunting grounds, I will note the differences between the two as we build. So, okay, how about we build? We pick up with the group making their way towards the east, back towards 6167 so they can cut north to the ferry. As they make their way to the intersection, they move back from a level 2 to a level 1 radiation zone, but they also get the impression that they're being watched. They can check, and we'll go ahead and give them that they notice what appears to be one person checking them out from the western side of 6167, He's definitely giving them the eye, and it should result in the group being more on alert than they'd been prior. The ambush comes as they move into the valley between the two hills. It comes without warning, and it all comes from the now northern side of the road. 
There's a dozen men shooting at them, and we'll use the upgraded Wastelander stats from last week. Should the group turn to the south to try to retreat, they'll run into another group, this one being the Mitchells. This group's the same size as the other one, and they'll open up on the group without warning as well. So we've got our group set up in a little hotbox situation here. And yes, I realize we've taken a bit of their choice away, but there's a little bit of thinking to it, so let me share it with you. While the group might not have had a run-in with the Lagerfelds, the Lagerfelds are very aware the group was hunting on their lands. And since they're not 100% sure whose side the group's on, they decided to shoot first and question the survivors. The Mitchell's thoughts are that the group may not be on the side of the Lagerfelds, but they might be here from some other group that wants to get a foothold in the area, and they don't want the competition. So the group's most likely going to have to handle a running firefight through town to get to the ferry. And I should probably pause for a moment here to note something. I'm building this for a group of five or six. So if you've got a group of four or less, obviously drop a few attackers out of the groups. We want this to be a big challenge, not a complete massacre. Of the two dozen shooting at them, the group will have to take down about eight before they'll be able to get on the ferry. If they have to shoot a flare, they'll have the time they need to get to that number without question. If Martin's waiting for them, they're going to need to hit their number before they get down the second hill and onto the landing. Otherwise, they risk Martin getting shot, and that's not good for anybody. What'll happen is that once they've dropped eight, everybody else will realize the group means business, and they'll retreat to rethink their strategy, which buys the group time to get back across the river. Now, that being said, if the group wants to take them all out, they most certainly can. And if they by chance do that, they'll pick themselves up one heck of a reputation with the two families, and that might come into play a bit later on. Maybe. Once Martin gets the group back across the river, they can settle up the account based on how much the group brings in. He's flush with caps, so however much the group earns, he's got plenty to cover it. He also offers to let the group rest there if they need to, since, of course, the turrets will protect everyone. Whether they take him up on it or not, they'll eventually have decided, I'm sure, to head back into more comfortable territory for them, which means it's back to the downtown area. Again, this is going to be about a five-hour walk, and this time the attack comes from Garson Tactical. And they're really going to be tactical about it. So, let's set the stage. The group will get through Lime and back across the river to Pear before it happens. And it happens with a missile attack. It'll land about five feet in front of the group, so make sure you know what order the group's walking in and whether it's single file, double file, or some other manner. A missile does 11 dice of damage, but rather than have you roll it, I've rolled it already for you, and it's 20 points of damage. And that'll be to anybody directly in front of the blast zone. Roll a d6 for the rest of the party. One through three, they manage to not take any damage. Four through six, they take half. Then the rest of the ambush begins. This Garson tactical group is two less than the PC group, and they approach from both the left and the right, attempting a pincer formation to force the group closer together. In theory, the group's already in bad shape, but if I know my group, they'll either try to talk their way out of things or shoot their way out. And for once, we're going to allow for both options. Again, we're using those Brotherhood of Steel Knight stats on page 383, so keep those in mind for the discussion between the groups. Pick one of the Garson soldiers to be the spokesperson and insist that only one of the PCs can speak. No assistance allowed. It's then a talk-off between the two. If the group succeeds, the Garson team will let them go, but under no circumstances will they agree to call off the kill order. They'll note that they can't since it comes from higher up on the totem pole. If the Garson team succeeds, 
fights on. If all group members fall, they'll be healed to the minimum amount needed to keep them alive and are taken prisoner by the Garson team. We'll get to that in a moment. If they succeed in the fight or are allowed to walk away, they can get back to Diamond Pass or their own hideout without further incident. Before we move on with the good, let's draw out what happens if the bad happens. The PCs will be mostly conscious as they're taken to a big holding cell. Where it is is something they're not certain of. They took so many turns on the way there, it was hard to keep track. Also, they realized there must have been more Garson personnel nearby, since there were more than enough to carry all of them to the location. As they come to their senses, they realize they've been stripped of their armor and weapons, and any robots in the group have had their weapons removed, along with any special armaments they've had applied. They're in a big cage in an even bigger room, and by the looks of things, they're in an old warehouse. That doesn't give them a lot to go on since there are a lot of old warehouses all over the downtown area. They also realize that the building, or at least the part they're in, is soundproofed since they can't hear anything other than themselves. Now they've got plenty of time to talk to themselves, so give them the time to say whatever they want to say. The more dramatic role players will probably love this since it's going to give them a chance to shine. If your group's more about skimming over this stuff to get to the action, well, then let's move on. At some point, a couple of men in Garson gear enter the room. One is armed with a laser rifle, while the other one has his pistol holstered and a set of keys in his hand. As he steps towards the cage, he speaks to the group. Normally, this would be the point where we'd be taking you to the council for your fate to be decided. However, you've apparently got friends in nice places since somebody paid off your bounty. You're free to go. However, there's a caveat. They have to leave their weapons and armor behind. That includes the robots. Now, they can keep everything else, including the caps they've collected. Now, I realize there are those of you who might find this cruel, so if you want to let them keep the weapons, do that. I'd just not let them have their ammo back. Or you can let them keep the armor, but not the weapons. The whole point is that Garson isn't about to give this group weapons that can be used against them. And if they start to get hot about it, they'll hear a very familiar voice come from the hallway beyond. Mr. Victor would greatly appreciate it if you wouldn't do anything to sully his reputation. It's Bruno, so it's pretty obvious who just paid to get him out. With his words, the group should take what they're being allowed to take and head on out. Bruno will escort the group back to Diamond Pass, and since it turns out they're being held on the riverfront in Soulard, it only takes about 10 minutes to get there. We'll get to what happens next momentarily. Let's discuss what happens if all went somewhat well and the group didn't manage to get captured. They'll be hauling butt to get back to the pass, but they will get there. If they weren't already headed that way, Bruno will catch up with them at some point and let them know that Victor has requested their presence. All of the usual protocols are followed and they enter Victor's office to find him casually flipping through an old book. He's got his feet up on the desk in what appears to be a glass of vodka poured and he sits up as they enter the room. My friends, I have been looking for you all day. I hope your day has gone well. When they tell him about the Garson attack, his mood shifts to annoyed. I am not happy with that, especially because I just paid Garson Tactical a large amount of caps to remove the marker from you. Either they have double-crossed me or the group you ran into was not aware. I will look into this, and if it was the first thing, we will be dealing with them personally. This would be about the point we'd pick up if the group had to be bailed out. Victor's attitude will be the same, though his wording will be different. I paid to get you out because Garson cares not for why you did what you did, only that you did it. 
And since one of those jobs you did was because of me, I felt a bit responsible for it. He holds his fingers up to indicate a little bit as he's saying that. That being said though, not all of the things they are upset with you for are my doing. So while I paid a large amount of caps, I will expect favor from you in the future to pay me back. He doesn't want the favor paid back now because he wants to save it for an especially tricky job. For now, he'd rather the group continue on their information gathering and job board hunting trips so that they can make more caps, especially if they had to lead Garson without their weapons and armor. So they need to take a few moments to shop, probably, and they'll definitely want to eat something and process everything that's happened before they proceed. And I think that's a good place to stop the build for today. Of course, that's because we've got a game recap to give, but we need to recap what we did a month ago before we cover last week's game. The group began by entering the Jessup Chemicals facility to find the chemicals they needed to whip up an antidote for Juliet to counter the super mutant formula she'd been injected with. They managed to do that, as well as cause a few shenanigans in the process. They delivered the chemicals to Paul, who whipped up two batches of the serum from the provided chemicals and administered the first while the group was there. He gave the group caps as thanks for a job well done, then the group moved on to the Opera House job for Corinth and Igmon. Their ultimate choice for entering the building was for Jim's Mr. Gutsy to fly up to the window, bust through, steal the clock, then speed the heck out of there towards their meetup spot, with the group making their way towards other points before meeting back up. They returned the clock to Corinth and Igmon and picked up their payment for a job well done. With two jobs successfully done and pockets filled with caps, the group headed to Diamond Pass to spend those caps, which they did. Bruno then approached the group with a request from Victor to meet with them. He requested that the group head to the Jessup Chemicals facility at the Dome and retrieve as much information as possible about the food supplement Jessup had created and released into the food chain. The group had agreed to do so, especially since they were still in their Jessup Chemicals gear from earlier. They entered, found the carnage in the facility, and managed to grab a hard drive that hadn't been chewed to bits. They returned to Victor, got access to a computer he didn't care about, and managed to find out that an order had been issued from somebody at Jessup to send all data to the Barnes Hospital facility, then delete it from the drives. So the group realized that they're going to need to get access to that information, and we ended the session with the group coming up with the idea of getting hold of a supervisor or other higher up within the Jessup hierarchy, since their argument was that the information had to have been sent wirelessly, and since that could be done, one of those supervisor types most likely had a Pip-Boy or similar device. Since they probably had one of those, if they can get their hands on one, they should be able to access the information without having to breach the facility. So, the plan was to linger on the outskirts of the building and wait for someone fitting the description to come out. And that was where we wrapped the session. It does need to be noted that Clayton was back for this game, but we were minus Tyler and Aniston, though I wound up playing their characters along the way to help them. As we began this session, the group was making their way to the hospital to, you know, pull off the plan they discussed. They made it a point to hang on the fringes of the hospital, and they noted on more than one occasion that they were spreading out so that it wouldn't be obvious that the hospital was being watched. I didn't make them roll because, let's be honest, if you work on something long enough, you're bound to get it done in some way, shape, or form. And they did. They noticed a gentleman wearing a white lab coat exit the building and head towards the north. What caught their eye, and I did make them roll for this, was the Pip-Boy he had on his right arm. Since they now had a target, they decided to trail him, with the idea being to get him close to an alley or something, then pull him in. 
They eventually got their chance, though they had to follow him for a bit, and it did require Tyler's robot to skirt out and around, cut the man off, and basically delay him while the rest of the group caught up and surrounded them. And I couldn't help myself. I had the robot say to the man, Have you heard about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If you happen to be a good Christian and this offends you, I do apologize. But I wanted to do something so out there that the guy had to stop. And what would be more out there than a robot missionary? Just saying. Anyway, the robot continued to push his point. The group got the man surrounded, and that's where the fun began. The group made it very clear from the beginning that they wanted and needed the Pip-Boy. And while they were more than willing to take it and leave him alone... Jim's robot also noted that he could very easily cut the arm off, take the Pip-Boy, and leave the dude. The guy was nervous as all get-out, noting that, They'll kill me if I give you this. He went back and forth for a few minutes with the group before Aniston finally conked him in the back of the head, knocking him out. They took the Pip-Boy, made sure he was safe in the alley, then Gabe decided to download all of the information he could get using the device into Tyler so that they could leave the Pip-Boy with the dude. They did, and Gabe checked out what they downloaded. He actually did that while it was being uploaded, but putting it here works for the flow of the story. I pulled Gabe aside and told him there were several files. There was one on the food additives, another on the organic limb replacement, an empty folder for garbage, a special file, a file that detailed the relationship between Garson Tactical and Jessup Chemicals, and a file with the Super Mutant Formula Project. They got back to Diamond Pass, and the group went to Victor to request a computer to load the info onto in order to see exactly what they got. Victor agreed, but the group also made a deal with him to sell him the rest of the information they dug up. We worked back and forth, but it was ultimately decided he would buy the rest of the information for 2,000 caps, which meant that with the caps he'd already offered for the food additive info, each group member got a tidy 300 caps. I mentioned all of the files except the secret file a moment ago, and of course Gabe wanted to try to open it. I told him that he was unable to do so, and I mumbled something about it being encrypted with stuff way more advanced than he'd ever seen. As agreed, the group gave Victor all the files, uploaded to Bruno as agreed upon. What they didn't tell Victor is that they'd kept a copy of everything for themselves, with their plan being to see if they could possibly sell a file or two to other interested parties. They had also decided that with all the caps they'd managed to pick up, it was probably time to set up a base of operations of their own. With a team of Protectron robots protecting a square block of real estate on the landing, they figured a building there would be the best choice. So they headed down and picked one out, and it was one that seemed to have the least amount of damage. They decided to use the Protectrons to help them rebuild, and while they started that, they decided to sell the Garson tactical file to Barnabas O'Reilly, since the file does connect Garson and Jessup, and since the group had left evidence behind implicating Jessup in the theft of the clock, they figured they'd want it. And they were right. When they got access to Barnabas, he was so excited, he actually gave them more caps than what they wanted. Don't ask. I got no successes, plus a complication on my roll. It was one of those nights. They got another 2,400 caps out of him, plus an offer to work together again in the future. With more caps, they realized they could better equip the base they were setting up, so they put in a weapons table, armor table, and chemical station. They also decided to reinforce the walls by taking as many bricks as they could salvage and build another wall right against the existing wall in order to thicken the walls, thus providing better protection. Once the chemical station was up and running, they reached out to Paul to ask him to work for them, and while he didn't want to do that, he did agree to provide them with stim packs in exchange for being allowed to conduct chemical experiments. 
Needless to say, they put the chemical station on the roof of the building, which was probably a good idea. They also bought a generator, which they also put on the roof, and Gabe purchased a computer terminal for his use in decoding programs they come across, and of course the secret file is going to be one of the first he tries. Now while they were doing that, they discussed selling some more of the information. They went back and forth on this, and I brought Melanie Zombrowski into the conversation as someone who would have the caps to spend for that type of information. They kicked around the idea of selling her the organic limb replacement file, but they also discussed how the information they have probably has a short shelf life, so if they didn't make a deal quickly, they might be out of luck. It was Jim who pointed out that thanks to the deal they made with Victor, if they piecemeal out the information to sell to others, word would likely get back to Victor, and since he's been a consistent source of caps for them to this point, making him mad would probably be a bad idea. So they decided they were done selling info. Scott suggested that rather than sell info, perhaps they should consider giving the info on the organic limb replacement to Diamond Pass Radio. After all, he argued, if they reported it, it would be out in the public and public opinion about Jessup could turn. He noted they could do it anonymously so that it couldn't come back on him later. Again, though, Jim noted that putting that information out there would probably be a bad idea since they sold it to Victor and have no idea what he might do with it. So that idea was scrapped as well. Now, at some point in all of this, they did meet with Victor to talk about the Barnabas deal and to talk about, you know, their thought on giving the stuff to Diamond Pass Radio. Victor admitted that he was disappointed, but that he wasn't mad. He thought that, yeah, okay, selling the information about Garson to Barnabas was probably a good idea in that it would drive him away from them into that. He also wasn't mad about the concept of giving the information to Diamond Pass Radio, as that was exactly what he was going to do with it. So like I said, he wasn't mad, he was just disappointed that they hadn't consulted with him on the information first. He just asked that moving forward, they check with him on that kind of stuff. Now, after nearly a month of working on their new base, Bruno came to them on behalf of Victor. Oh, and he knew where to find them because the group had shared their new address with both Victor and Barnabas O'Reilly in case either had a job for them. I made it a point to note how rare it is for Bruno to leave the past to do errands for Victor. So if he's out, there's something seriously wrong. And I made sure to have Bruno speaking in a rushed tone. He told them that Victor needed to see them immediately and he rushed off the group following. This is where I dropped in the bit about the kidnapping of Corinth and Igmon. Once Victor laid out what had happened, the group decided to game plan getting into the hospital to get him out. At first, Victor was going to be the one to lend them the big weapons to use, but they ultimately decided that instead of making a lot of noise, they'd be better off taking out that turret with a pulse grenade than sneaking in through the hole in the wall. That is exactly what they did, and they got to Corinth and Igmon, cut him down, and got him back to Victor, where they were treated. They were thanked, and we ended the session there. And so that brings us to the end of this week's show. Next week, we'll pick up with stuff for our group to do next, and the idea is to present them with some options, so hopefully we'll give them a good spectrum to choose from. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine show, Role-Playing History. This week, we deep-dive the D&D settings Al-Kadim and Karatur. They are, in my opinion, a couple of very interesting settings that don't necessarily get the love they deserve. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games, and they're utilized here for entertainment purposes only. 
If you're interested in checking out all of the fine game products produced by Modifius, check out their website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, we're Bad GM Productions. Email, you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we cook up a whole new kettle of fish for our group to get involved with. And I promise you, the group will finally get some information about some of the people and things they're looking for. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Thank you.